I shall today speak about three German thinkers, two philosophers and one artist, one dramatist, who left a very profound imprint upon the entire Romantic movement, both in Germany and beyond its borders. The Romantics of whom I speak today could, I think, justly be called restrained Romantics. Next time, I propose to talk about unrestrained Romantics, to whom this movement ultimately led. The nature of things, said Rousseau once, the nature of things does not madden us, only ill will does. This is probably true of the majority of mankind. But there were certain Germans in the 18th century of whom this is plainly false. They were maddened not merely by the ill will of persons, but by the nature of things. One of these certainly was the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Let me try and explain what it is that I wish to say. Kant hated Romanticism. He detested every form of extravagance, fantasy, what he called schwärmerei, any form of exaggeration, mysticism, vagueness, confusion. Nevertheless, he was justly regarded as one of the fathers of Romanticism, in which there is a certain irony. He was brought up like Hamann and like Herder, both of whom he knew, in a pietist atmosphere. He regarded Hamann as a pathetic and confused mystic, and he disliked Herder's writings for the vast generalizations unsupported by evidence, enormous, great imaginative sweeps, which he regarded, on the whole, as an offense against reason. Kant was an admirer of the sciences. He had a precise and extremely lucid mind. He wrote obscurely, but seldom imprecisely. He was a distinguished scientist himself. He was a distinguished cosmologist. He believed in scientific principles perhaps more deeply than in any others. He regarded it as, as his life's task to explain the foundations of scientific logic and scientific method. He disliked everything that was rhapsodical or confused in any respect. He liked logic and he liked rigor. He, on the whole, regarded those who objected to these qualities as simply mentally indolent. He said that logic and rigor were difficult exercises of the human mind, and it was customary that those who found these things too difficult invented objections of a different type. And no doubt there is a great deal in what he said. <laughs> but the, the respect in which he is the father of Romanticism is not as the critic of the sciences, nor, of course, as a scientist himself, but specifically in his moral philosophy. Kant was virtually intoxicated by the idea of human freedom. His pietist upbringing led not to rhapsodical self-communings, as it did in the case of Hamann and others, but a kind of intense preoccupation with the inner life of man, with the moral life of man. And one of the propositions about which he was convinced was that every man as such is aware of the difference between, on the one hand, inclination, desires, passions, which pull at him, as it were, from outside, which are part of his emotional or sensitive or, in some sense, empirical nature on the one hand, and on the other, the notion of duty, of obligation, of what is right, which often came into conflict with desire for pleasure and for inclination. And the confusion of the two appeared to him to be a primitive fallacy. He might well have quoted the famous lines of Shaftesbury, who objected to the view of man as being determined or conditioned by outside factors. Man, said Shaftesbury at the beginning of the 18th century, is not a tiger strongly trained or a monkey under the influence of a whip. That is to say, a tiger strongly trained to the fear of punishment, or a monkey under the influence of the whip, the whip being desire for reward 
of fear of punishment. Man is free. Man has original native liberty. And this original native liberty, according to Shaftesbury, gives us the privilege of ourselves and makes us our own. But this, in the case of Shaftesbury, was simply an obiter dictum, which hadn't very much to do with the rest of his philosophy. In the case of Kant, it became an obsessive central principle. Man is man for Kant only because he chooses. The difference between man and the rest of nature, whether animal or inanimate or vegetable, is that other things are under the law of causality, other things follow rigorously in some kind of foreordained schema of cause and effect, whereas man is free to choose what he wishes. This, the will, is the thing which distinguishes human beings from other objects in nature. The will is that which enables men to choose either good or evil, either right or wrong. There is no merit in choosing what is right unless it is possible to choose what is wrong. Creatures who are determined by whatever causes into perpetually choosing that which is good and beautiful and true could claim no merit for doing so, for however noble the results, the action would be automatic. And therefore, he supposed that the whole notion of moral merit, the whole notion of moral desert, the whole notion which is entailed in the fact that we praise and we blame, that we consider that human beings are to be congratulated or condemned for acting in this or that way, presupposes the fact that they are able freely to choose. For this reason, of course, one of the things which he most strenuously disliked was, in politics at any rate, the notion of paternalism. There are two main obstacles which obsess Kant all his life. One is the obstruction of men, the other is the obstruction of things. The obstruction of men is a familiar enough theme. In a short essay called What is Enlightenment, Kant lays it down that enlightenment is simply the ability of men to determine their own lives the liberation of themselves from the leading strings of others. The fact that men become mature and determine what to do, whether it be evil or whether it be good, without leaning excessively upon authority, upon governesses of one kind or another, upon the state, upon their parents, upon their nurses, upon tradition, upon any kind of established values upon which the weight of moral responsibility is then squarely laid. A man is responsible for his own acts. Once he gives this up, or if he is too immature to realize it, then he is pro tanto, a barbarian, and not civilized, a barbarian or a child. Civilization is maturity. Maturity is self-determination, being determined by rational considerations and not being pushed and pulled about by something or other over which he has no control, in particular by other persons. A paternalist government, says Kant, and he thinks about Frederick the Great, although it would no doubt have been unsafe for a professor in Königsberg to say so openly. A paternalist government based on the benevolence of a ruler who treats his subjects as ungrown-up children is the greatest conceivable despotism and destroys all freedom. And this is really an echo of Rousseau, who said, the man who stands in dependence on another is no longer a man at all. He has lost his standing. He is nothing but the possession of another man. And therefore, Kant, in his moral philosophy, is particularly rabid against any form of domination by one human being against another. He's really the father of the notion of exploitation as an evil thing. I don't think you will find a very great deal before the late 18th century, and in particular, before Kant, about exploitation as an evil. And indeed, why should it be regarded as so terrible that one man should use another man for his own purposes rather than this other man's? Perhaps there are worse vices. Perhaps cruelty is worse. Perhaps, as the Enlightenment maintained, ignorance is worse, or indolence, or other things of that sort. Not so for Kant. 
any kind of use of other people for purposes which are not these other people's, but one's own, seems to him to be a form of degradation, degradation imposed by one man on another. Seems to him some kind of form of hideous maiming of other people, of removal from them, of that which distinguishes them as, as men, namely the self-determining liberty. And that is why you get these passionate sermons against exploitation, degradation, dehumanization in Kant, which afterwards becomes, in some sense, the stock and trade of all liberal and socialist uh, writers in the 19th and 20th centuries. The whole notion of degradation, reification, mechanization of life, the alienation of human beings from one another or from their proper purposes, the use of men as things, the use of human beings as raw material for people to wreak their will on, the general view of human beings as entities which can be pushed about or determined or educated against their will, the monstrosity of that, so to speak, the notion that this is in some sense the morally worst thing which one human being can do to another really stems from this passionate propaganda by Kant. No doubt it can be found in other authors, particularly Christian authors, before Kant. But it was he who secularized it and translated it into common European currency. This is a very central notion indeed. Why did he feel this? He felt this, of course, because he thought that values were entities which human beings, in some sense, generated themselves. The notion is this. If human beings depend on something outside themselves for their actions, if, in other words, the source of their behavior is not within them, but in something else, then they cannot be regarded as responsible. If they are not responsible, they are not moral beings. If they are not moral beings, then our distinctions of right and wrong, our distinctions of free and unfree, our distinctions of duty and pleasure are delusions. And this he was not prepared to face. This he denied. He regarded it as a primary datum of the human consciousness, at least as primary as the fact that we say, see tables and chairs or that we have some kind of um, perception of other objects in nature, at least as primary as that, the fact that we know that there are certain things which, of which it could be said that we could either do them or refrain from doing them. This is a basic datum. If this is so, then it cannot be that values, namely aims or ends which human beings strive for, are in some sense outside us, whether in nature or in God. Because if they were outsiders and if they determined us, then we should be slaves to them. It would be an extremely sublime form of slavery, but slavery nevertheless. To be unslave-like, to be free, is therefore in some sense to commit yourself freely to some kind of moral values. You can commit yourself to it or not, but the central act is the commitment. Not the nature of the value itself, but the fact that you commit yourself to it. What you commit yourself to is another matter. That might be discoverable by rational means. But the commitment or the non-commitment, that alone is what makes it a value for you. In other words, to call a thing good or bad, to call it right or wrong, is in effect to say that there is a free self-committing act, what later became called engagé behavior, committal behavior, unindifferent behavior on the part of human beings. Now, if this is so, and, and this, of course, is what Kant means by saying that men are ends in themselves, they are ends in themselves because what else could be an end? Men are choosers of acts. To sacrifice a man, you must sacrifice him to something higher than himself. Nothing is higher than that, so to speak, which is to be regarded as the highest moral value. But to call a thing a high moral value is to say that some man or other is prepared to live or die for it. Unless somebody is prepared to live or die for it, there is no it in the sense of a moral value. A value is made a value by human choice and not by some intrinsic quality in itself out there. Values are not stars in some moral heaven. They are internal. They are what human beings freely choose to live for, to fight for, to die for. That, I think, is Kant's 
fundamental sermon. He doesn't really give a great deal of argument for it. He simply states it as a more or less self-evident truth in various types of propositions which more or less repeat each other. But far more sinister from Kant's point of view than even the obstruction of men or the enslavement of men or the tampering of one man by another or the getting at one another by men is for him the nightmare thought of determinism, of slavery by nature. If, says Kant in effect, um, that which is undoubtedly true about inanimate nature, namely the law of causality, were true about all aspects of human life, then indeed there would be no morality. For then men would be wholly conditioned by outside factors, and although they might deceive themselves into supposing that they were free, they would in fact be determined. In other words, for him, determinism, particularly me mechanical determinism, is incompatible with any freedom and any morality, and must therefore be false. By determinism, he means any kind of, so to speak, determination by outside factors, whether by material factors, physical or chemical factors, about which the 18th century spoke, or by the passions which, in fact, are irresistible to men. If you say about a passion, it is stronger than I, I couldn't help it, I yielded, I was pushed, I was unable, it, was, it overwhelmed me, you are, in effect, confessing to a certain kind of helplessness and slavery. This need never be the case for him. The free will problem is, of course, an ancient conundrum. It was invented by the Stoics, and it, it has troubled human imagination and human mind ever since. But Kant really saw it as a kind of fearful nightmare. And when the official solution was produced for him, namely, that while, of course, we choose uh, as we choose, we can choose between one thing and another, nobody denies that, but the object for our choice and the fact that we are likely to choose in the way in which we shall choose is determined. In other words, that if there are alternatives, it is, of course, possible to do either one or the other. But the fact that we are placed in a situation where these are the alternatives, and in fact, more than that, that our will will, in fact, be determined in a certain direction, so that we do what we will, but our will itself is not free, that Kant called a miserable subterfuge, which should not be able to take in anybody. Consequently, he cut off all possible routes of escape, all the official routes of escape, which other philosophers, frightened by the same dilemma, had provided. And indeed, this problem, although it was particularly acute for Kant, then proceeded to dominate European thought and indeed, to some extent, European action ever since. It's a problem which obsesses the 19th century. It's a problem which obsesses both philosophers and, to some, and historians in the 19th and indeed in our own century too. It is a problem which has come out with peculiar acuteness in various forms today, for example, in the forms of arguments between historians about the relative roles of individuals in history and vast impersonal forces, social or economic or psychological. It has come out in the form of various types of political theory, those who believe that men are, for example, determined by their objective position in a structure, say the class structure, and those who believe that men are not determined or attenuate not wholly so determined. It comes out in legal theory between people who think that crime is in some sense a disease and should be cured by medical means because it is something for which the criminal is not responsible as opposed to those who believe that the criminal can choose what to do and therefore to cure him or to use medical treatment of him is in some sense an insult to his inborn human dignity. This was certainly the view taken by Kant. He believed in retributive punishment. He believed in retributive punishment, which is today regarded as a retrograde point of view, and perhaps may indeed be it, because he thought that a man would prefer to go to prison to going to a hospital. Because he thought that if a man did something and he was blamed for it, severely blamed for it, or even punished for it because he might have avoided it, this in some sense presupposed that he was a human being with a power of choice, even though he may have chosen what was evil. 
rather than treating him as, in some sense, conditioned by forces over which he had no control, say the unconscious, say the environment, say the treatment of him by his parents, or a thousand other factors which had rendered him incapable of acting in some other way, say ignorance, say physical disease of some kind, that this, on the whole, in some sense, was a deeper insult to him, inasmuch as it treated him, in some sense, as an animal or a thing, rather than as a human being. And Kant is very passionate on this point. I wish to bring out, so to speak, the full flavor of his views. He says, for him, generosity, for example, is a vice. Because generosity is, so to speak, ultimately a form of condescension of patronage. It's ultimately what the haves give to the have-nots. In a world which was just, generosity would not be required. Pity and compassion appear to Kant to be detestable qualities. He would rather be ignored, he would rather be insulted, he would rather be badly treated than pitied, because pity entails a certain superiority on the part of the pitier for him who is pitied, and this superiority Kant stoutly denied. All men are equal, all men can determine themselves, and if one man pities another, he thereby reduces him, in some sense, to an animal or a thing, or at any rate, to a pitiable or pitiful object. And this, for Kant, was the most fearful insult to human dignity and human morality. That was Kant's moral view. Now, the thing which frightened him was this notion of the external world as a kind of treadmill. And he says, if Spinoza is right, and if the determinists of the 18th century are right, for example, Helvetius, or for example, Holbach, or the scientists, and a man is simply an object in nature, simply a mass of um, flesh and bones and blood and nerves, who is acted upon by external forces exactly as animals and objects are, then a, a man, as he says, is nothing but a turn spit. He moves, but not through his own volition. Man is nothing but a clock. He is set, he ticks, but he doesn't set himself. And this kind of freedom is no freedom at all and has no moral value of any kind. Consequently, total denial of determinism and enormous emphasis upon the human will. This is what he calls autonomy. And being pulled and pushed about by external factors, whether they be physical or emotional, he calls heteronomy. That is to say, laws, the sources of which are outside the human being. Now, this entails a new and somewhat revolutionary view of nature, which again becomes an extremely central factor in the European consciousness. Until then, the attitude which was taken towards nature, whatever might be meant by that word, and I think some scholars have counted no fewer than 200 meanings, I think, which are attached to the word nature in the 18th century alone. Whatever attitude was taken towards nature was on the whole benevolent or respectful. Nature was regarded as, in some sense, a harmonious system, or at least a symmetrical, well-composed system, such that man suffered when in some way he got out of gear with it. And therefore, the way to cure human beings when they were, for example, criminal or unhappy, was somehow to restore them to what they should be, or to the bosom of nature. The various views are taken of this nature, as I told you, I think, in my first lecture, mechanistic views, biological views, all kinds of metaphors are used, organic views, physical views, but always the same refrain, mistress nature, dame nature, nature's leading strings which we ought not to detach ourselves from. Even Hume, who is the least metaphysical of thinkers, thinks that when men get out of sorts, if they become unhappy or mad, nature usually asserts herself, and that means certain fixed habits assert themselves, and a healing process occurs, the wound heals, and men are reintegrated into the harmonious flow or the harmonious system, whether you regard nature as static or whether you regard her as a moving affair. Anyhow, men are restored by being somehow reabsorbed into this large and comforting medium which man should never have deserted. 
For Kant, this cannot, plainly can't be true. The notion of mistress nature, dame nature, something benevolent, something to be worshipped, something which art ought to imitate, something which morals ought to derive from, something which politics are founded upon, as Montesquieu said, that derogates from man's inborn liberty of choice, because nature is certainly mechanical. Or even if not mechanical, even if it is organic, at any rate, every event in nature follows by a rigorous necessity from every other. And therefore, if man is part of nature, then he is determined, and morality is a hideous and very painful illusion. Therefore, nature and Kant becomes, at worst, an enemy. At best, simply neutral stuff which one molds. Man is, as it were, conceived of as partly in nature, plainly his body is in nature, his emotions are in nature, all the various things which are capable of making him heteronymous or depend upon something other than his true self are natural. But when he's at his freest, when he's at his most human, when he rises to his noblest heights, then he dominates nature. That is to say, he molds her, he breaks her, he imposes his personality upon her. He does that which he chooses because he commits himself to certain ideals, and by committing himself to these ideals, he creates something, he imposes his seal upon nature. And nature, therefore, becomes plastic stuff. Some bits of nature are more plastic than others. But all nature must be presented to man as something with which, or upon which, or at which he does something, not something to which he, by nature, or the whole of him, at any rate, belongs. And this notion that nature is in some sense an enemy or neutral stuff is, of course, something relatively new. Legislation is moral. The legislator is man himself. Nature is simply inert stuff upon which man impresses himself. That is why Kant acclaimed the French Constitution of 1790, because he said that here at last was a form of government in which all men, at least theoretically, were able to vote freely, to speak their views, no longer to obey a government no matter how benevolent, no longer obey a church no matter how excellent, no longer obey principles no matter how ancient, provided they were not of their own making. Once man was encouraged, as he was by the French Constitution, to vote freely in accordance with his own inner not impulsions, he wouldn't have called it that, but his own inner decisions, his own inner will, he was thereby liberated. And whether he um, interpreted it correctly or incorrectly, it appeared to him that the French Revolution was a great liberating act inasmuch as it asserted the value of individual souls. And he said much the same about the American Revolution too. When his colleagues deplored the terror and regarded all the events in France with undisguised horror, Kant, although he didn't exactly openly approve, never quite retreated from the position that at any rate it was an experiment in the right direction, even if it went wrong. <laughs> and this, on the whole, indicates, so to speak, the passion with which this very conventional, normally very obedient, very tidy, old-fashioned, somewhat provincial East Prussian professor, nevertheless regarded this great opening chapter in the history of the human race, the self-assertion of human beings, against huge monsters, as he thought of it, standing over against him, tradition, unbreakable ancient principles, kings, governments, parents, all kinds of authority, which is simply accepted because it is authority. Anything but authority was on the whole Kant's device. He's not normally thought of in these terms, but there is no doubt that his moral philosophy is firmly founded upon this anti-authoritarian principle. Now, this, of course, asserts the primacy of the will. In a certain sense, Kant was still a child of 18th century enlightenment, because he thought that all men, if their hearts were pure, and when they asked themselves what it was that it was right to do, 
would, in similar circumstances, arrive at identical conclusions because to all questions, reason must, in all men, give the self-same answer. This was also something which was believed in Rousseau. Kant used to believe that only a minority of human beings were enlightened enough or experienced enough or morally uh, lofty enough to be able to give the correct answers. Under the Im impulse of reading Rousseau's Emile, which he admired very greatly, indeed, uh, the picture of Rousseau was the only human representation that could be found above Kant's desk. He believed that all men were capable of this. Any man, whatever else he might lack, he might be ignorant, he might know no chemistry, he might know no logic, he might know no history, but any man was capable of discovering rational answers to the question, how shall I behave? And all rational answers must of necessity coincide. As to the fallacies of this doctrine, I shall not enter into them here, for it will take us too long. But this is the only thin cord by which he is still bound to what might be called 18th century rationalism. The content of the will, so to speak, must be similar to all men. But the impulsion, the notion of commitment, the fact that unless there is a kind of free self-commitment to a course of action, it is worthless that a man who simply acts from impulse, however generous, that a man who acts from his natural character, however noble, that a man who acts under any kind of ineluctable pressure, whether it be from outside or from his own inner nature, that such acts are totally worthless, that the only thing which is worth possessing is an unfettered will. This is the central proposition which Kant, as it were, put on the map. And it was destined to have exceedingly um, revolutionary and subversive consequences, which I think he could hardly have anticipated. There are all kinds of versions of this doctrine which appear towards the end of the 18th century, but perhaps the most vivid and the most interesting from our point of view is that of his faithful disciple, the dramatist, poet, and historian, Schiller, Friedrich Schiller. Schiller is as intoxicated by the idea of will, liberty, autonomy, man on his own, as Kant was. Unlike previous thinkers, unlike Helvetius, unlike Holbach, who simply believed that there were certain correct answers to social questions and to moral questions and to artistic and to economic and to uh, factual questions of every kind. And the important thing was simply to get human beings to understand these answers and act accordingly. How you got them to do this mattered relatively little. In a strict opposition to this, Schiller is, as I say, constantly harping upon the fact that the only thing which makes man man is the fact that he is able to rise above nature and in some way mold her, in some way crush her, in some way subjugate her to his beautiful, unfettered, morally directed will. Let me read you the kind of remarks which Schiller makes throughout his writings, the kind of sentences which occur throughout his philosophical essays. He constantly speaks of spiritual freedom, freedom of reason, the kingdom of freedom, our free self, inner freedom, freedom of mind, moral freedom, the free intelligence, the free intelligence is a very favorite phrase, holy freedom, impregnable citadel of freedom, and an equivalent number of expressions in which instead of the word freedom, the word independence comes in, but which means for these purposes exactly the same. Schiller's theory of tragedy is founded upon this notion of freedom, and his practice as a tragic writer and his, his poetry is impregnated with this notion. And that is the way in which, so to speak, perhaps more perhaps than through the direct reading of Kant, it had a powerful effect upon romantic art, both poetical and plastic. Tragedy does not consist in the mere spectacle of suffering. If man were pure mind, he wouldn't suffer at all. Helpless suffering, suffering which a man cannot avoid, a man crushed by misfortune, 
is not an object of tragedy, it is merely an object of horror, pity, and perhaps disgust. The only entity which could be regarded as properly tragic is, of course, resistance. Resistance on the part of a man to whatever it is that oppresses him. Leocon, who resists his natural impulse to escape, not to behave in accordance with the truth as he did. Regulus, who surrendered himself to the Carthaginians, although no doubt he might have lived a more comfortable and perhaps not less disgraceful life if he had remained in Rome. Milton Satan, after he has seen the appalling spectacle of hell, nevertheless continues with his evil designs. These are tragic figures because they assert themselves, because they're not tempted into conformity, because they don't yield to temptation, whether of pleasure or of pain, or whether physical temptation or moral temptation. Because they measure themselves, they cross their arms upon the crossroads, and they defy nature. And defiance, but moral defiance in Schiller's case, of course, not any defiance, but defiance in the name of some ideal to which you seriously commit yourself, that is what makes for tragedy, because it is a conflict. And it is a conflict in which man is grappling against forces, either too great for him or not, as the case may be. Richard III, Iago, are not tragic figures for him, because they behave like animals. They behave under the impulse of passion. And therefore, he says, of course, when we're not thinking about human beings, if we're not thinking in moral terms, we watch with fascination the marvelously ingenious behavior of these fascinating human animals who do behave in the most remarkable fashion so that Shakespeare's genius and fantasy makes them go through extraordinary convolutions, intellectually, in some respects, superior to those of the average man. But as soon as you think of what is happening, you realize that they are behaving under the influence of passion which they cannot avoid. Once this is true, they are not human beings, and we are ashamed and disgusted. We think they are not behaving as human beings, they have resigned from their humanity, and they are therefore detestable and dehumanized. And therefore, they are not tragic figures. Nor, I regret to say, is Lovelace in Richardson's novel, who is simply an amorist who pursues various ladies under the impulse of ungovernable passion. If ungovernable, no tragedy, whatever may occur. <laughs> now, Schiller thinks drama perhaps acts as a kind of inoculation. If we ourselves were in the situation of Leocorn, or ourselves in the situation of Oedipus, or whoever it may be, struggling against fate, we might succumb. Also, the terror of being in such, such a situation might be so great that our feelings would be numbed, or we should be driven out of our minds. And therefore, we cannot tell how we should behave. But by watching these things on the stage, we remain relatively cool and detached. And therefore, in some sense, it performs an educational function. We observe what it is for a man to behave like a man. And for a man to behave like a man is the purpose of art, is the purpose at least of dramatic art which is concerned with human beings, to show human beings behaving in the manner which is most human in human beings. That is Schiller's doctrine. And of course, it, it derives directly from Kant. Nature herself is indifferent to man. Nature herself is amoral. Nature herself destroys us in the most ruthless and hideous fashion. And this is what makes us particularly aware of the fact that we are not part of her. Let me read you a typical Schiller quotation. The very circumstance that nature regarded as a whole mocks all the rules which our understanding prescribes for her, that she proceeds on her free and capricious career and treads in the dust the creations of wisdom without regard for them, that she snatches up what is significant and what is trivial, what is noble and what is common, and involves them in a hideous identical disaster, that she preserves a world of ants and seizes man, her most glorious creature, in her giant's arms and crushes him, that she often dissipates 
man's most arduous achievements, and indeed her own most arduous achievements, in one frivolous hour, and devote centuries to a work of unnecessary folly. That is typical of nature. So much the better. We welcome this. We welcome it not because we suffer. We welcome it because it underlines and emphasizes and brings out the fact that this is nature and not art. This is nature and not man. This is nature and not morality. And therefore makes for a vast contrast between nature, which is this elemental, capricious, perhaps causal, perhaps chance-directed entity, and man, who has immorality, distinguishes in good and evil, the beautiful and the ugly, the good and the bad, and acts accordingly. And acts accordingly, if need be, against nature. That, I think, is the central doctrine in Schiller. And this, I think, emerges in most of his tragedies. Let me give you a very typical example, which will show to what lengths he went. He rejected the Kantian solution, fundamentally, because it seemed to him that though Kant's will liberates us from nature, it puts us into a very narrow moral path of too grim, too confining a Calvinist world. The path in which the only alternatives are either being the plaything of nature or following this grim path of Lutheran duty, which is what Kant thought in terms of, is something which maims and destroys and cramps and cribs human nature. If man is to be free, he must be free not merely to do his duty, he must be free to choose between either following nature or doing his duty quite freely. He must stand above both duty and nature and be able to choose either. In discussing Euripides' Medea, he makes this point. Medea, if you remember, is a play by Euripides in which the princess of Colchis, because she becomes angry with Jason, who first rescues her from Colchis, or abducts her, rather, and then abandons her, proceeds to kill her children. In fact, I think she boils them alive. Schiller doesn't approve of this action particularly, but he says <laughs> that Medea is nevertheless far loftier than Jason, because Medea defies nature. She defies nature in herself. She defines her maternal instinct. She defies her own affection for her children. She rises above and she acts freely. What she does may be abominable, but in principle she is somebody who is capable of reaching loftier heights. Because she is free and not under the impulsion of nature, then poor Philistine Jason, who is a perfectly decent Athenian of his time and generation and who lives a perfectly um, ordinary life, not entirely blameless, but not tragically sinister either, and who simply drifts along with the tide of conventional sentiment. That is perfectly worthless. Medea, at least, is somebody. Jason is nobody. And this, I think, is, roughly speaking, the kind of category which he uses in his other plays as well. Fiasco, which is one of the, his early plays, is the tyrant of Genoa. And no doubt he does wrong. He oppresses the Genoese. Still, although he does what is bad, he is superior to the knaves and the fools, the ignoramuses and the rabble of Genoa, whom, who need a master and whom he dominates. And no doubt it is maybe right for the Republican leader, um, Verina, to drown him, as finally he does in the play. Nevertheless, we lose something in Fiasco. He is, as a human being, qualitatively superior to the persons who correctly murder him. This is, roughly speaking, Schiller's doctrine. And it is the beginning, if you like, of that great doctrine of the great Siddhar and the superfluous man, which was then destined to play a certain part in 19th century art. Werther died quite uselessly. René, in Chateaubriand's story of the same name, dies quite uselessly. They die uselessly because they belong to a society which is incapable of making use of them. Of them. They are superfluous persons. They are superfluous because their morality, which is a morality superior, we are meant to understand, 
to the, to the society around them, has no opportunity of asserting itself against the fearful opposition offered by the Philistines, the slaves, the heteronymous creatures of the society in which they live. This is the beginning of a long generation, a long line of superfluous men, particularly celebrated in Russian literature, of Griboyedov, Trotsky, of Evgeny Onegin, of Turgenev, superfluous persons, of Oblomov, of all the various characters who occur in the Russian novel, up to and including Dr. Zhivago. This is the origin of this. And then there is the other line. The men who say that if society is bad, if it is impossible to obtain the proper morality, if everything one does is obstructed, if there is nothing to be done, then down with the society, let it be ruined, let it go, all crime is permitted. And this is the beginning of the great sinner in Dostoevsky, the Nietzschean figure who wishes to raise to the ground a society whose system of values is such that a superior person who truly understands what it is to be free cannot operate in terms of it, and therefore prefers to destroy it, and prefers indeed to destroy the principles in terms of which he himself sometimes acts, prefers self-destruction, suicide, to continuing to drift along simply as an object in an uncontrollable stream. This, I think, is the beginning of Schiller under the influence, oddly enough, of Kant, who would have been horrified to perceive any such consequences of his perfectly orthodox, half-pietist, half-stoical doctrine. Now, this, I think, is one of the great motifs, certainly, in the romantic movement. And if you like to ask, when chronologically does this occur, it's not all, it's altogether difficult to identify it. Towards the end of the 60s, Lessing wrote a play called Minna von Barnhelm. I shall not attempt to summarize the plot of this not altogether interesting play, beyond simply saying that the hero of it is a man called Major Telheim, who is a man of honor, who is badly treated, injustice is done to him, and because he has a very acute sense of his own honor, he refuses to meet the lady whom he loves and who loves him, because he supposes that she may suppose that he has performed an act which is not altogether honorable, although he is in fact quite innocent. And because she may think it, therefore it is impossible for him to face her, until and unless it has been made quite clear that in fact he is innocent, and in fact does not deserve any possible attitude, negative attitude, which a conceivable misunderstanding of his part might entail. He behaves very honorably, but rather foolishly. Lessing's point is that although he's a good man and indeed a nice man, nevertheless, uh, he's not a very sensible man. And in the end, the play ends quite happily because, in fact, the lady turns out to be a great deal more sensible than the gentleman, and she manages to create a situation in which his innocence is triumphantly displayed and they are united and are happy forever, we are meant to understand. <laughs> but so that Telheim, you see, is in some sense a man who is wronged by society, who passionately pursues certain ideals, which are his own ideals, who is thoroughly engaged and committed, who is, in fact, everything that Schiller wants people to be. In the early 80s, when he wrote the play called The Robbers, of which Karl Moore, as I, told, I think I told you on last occasion, is the hero, Karl Moore, who has also been wronged, and who, because he has been wronged, becomes the head of a robber gang, and murders and pillages and sets buildings on fire, and in the end, surrenders himself to justice and causes himself to be executed. Karl Moore is the same major Telheim promoted to heroic status. And therefore, if you wish to know when is the moment at which the romantic hero genuinely emerges, he emerges, at least in Germany, which seems to me to be the motherland of this figure. He emerges somewhere between the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 80s. For what sociological reasons, I shall not attempt to explain. I shall generate volunteer no explanation. At any rate, this is it. In Moliere, in the Misanthrope, for example, Alceste is somebody who is bitterly disappointed by the world, who cannot abide, cannot adjust himself to its false and trivial and repulsive values, but he is not the hero of the play. There are more sensible persons in Moliere's play who ultimately try and bring him to his senses and do. 
He's not detestable, he's not contemptible. But he's not the hero, he is, if anything, faintly comical. So is Telheim, faintly comical, disarming, agreeable, amiable, morally attractive, but faintly ridiculous. By 1780, he's not faintly ridiculous, he's satanic. And this, I think, is the change. This is the great break between what might be called the rationalist or the enlightened tradition, or the tradition of the fact that there is a nature of things which must be learned, which must be understood, which must be known, and to which people must adjust themselves at the cost of either suffering or making fools of themselves, between that tradition and the tradition where, on the contrary, man commits himself to the values to which he commits himself and perishes, if need be, in their defense heroically. In other words, the notion of martyrdom and heroism as somehow a quality to be uh, worshipped for its own sake emerges, seems to me to emerge, about them. Schiller's fundamental view, I think, is that man goes through three stages. First, what he calls the Notstaat. That is to say, the state which is governed by necessity, where there is a thing called the Stoffdrang. The Stoffdrang is stuff drive, is a literal translation. That means driven by, drive in the modern psychological sense, driven by the nature of matter. This is a kind of Hobbesian jungle in which human beings collide with each other, in which they are possessed by passions and by desires, in which they have no ideals, in which they simply collide with each other and where it is necessary somehow to separate them from each other. And this is a state which he calls savage. Then there is a state which is not savage, but on the contrary, which is where men, in order to improve their condition, adopt very rigid principles. But it is possible to make out of these principles also a kind of fetish. And that is what he calls the barbarian state, interestingly enough. Savage for him is somebody driven by passions which he cannot master. Barbarians are people who worship idols, for example, absolute principles, which they also worship without knowing why, because they're taboos, because they're laid down, because they're a decalogue, because somebody told them because they proceed from a source of dark and unquestionable authority. That, I think, is what he calls barbarism. Then there is a, a synthesis of this, which is neither the Notstaat on the one hand, nor the Vernunftstaat, which is the second one, which is the rational state, which is not enough, which is only Kant, which is only commandments. There is the third condition towards which Schiller aspires. Like all writers, idealists of his time, Schiller imagines that once upon a time there was a marvelous human unity. Once upon a time there was a golden age when passion was not divided from reason and liberty was not divided from necessity. And then something appalling happened. Culture occurred, rather on the lines of Rousseau. And as a result of this, ungovernable desires, jealousies, envies, men divided against other men, men divided against themselves, fraud, misery, alienation. How are we to get back? to this original state without lapsing into some kind of innocence or childishness, which is plainly neither feasible nor desirable. This must be done, according to Schiller, by means of art, liberation by art. What is this liberation by art? He speaks about the Spieltrieb. Spieltrieb means play, drive. He says that the only way in which human beings can liberate themselves is by adopting the attitude of players, people, games, players. What does he mean? Because art for him is a form of play. And he explains that the difficulty for him is to reconcile, on the one hand, the necessities of nature, which cannot be avoided, and which certainly cause distress. And on the other hand, these rigorous commandments, which narrow and contract life. And the only way to do that is by placing ourselves in the position of people who freely imagine and freely invent. If we are children at play, to take the very simplest instance, although it isn't Schiller's instance, 
If we are children that play, we can imagine ourselves to be Red Indians, and if we imagine ourselves to be Red Indians, we are, for these purposes, Red Indians. And we obey the rules of Red Indians without a sense of pressure. The pressure is not upon us because we invent them ourselves. Anything we make is ours. Anything we make doesn't crush us. And therefore, if only we can transform ourselves into creatures who obey laws not because these laws are made for us by others, who obey laws not because we are terrified of them, who obey these laws not simply because they are laid down by some frowning deity or by terrifying men or by nature herself. If we can only obey these laws because we choose to do so freely, exactly as people who play invent their game and then obey the laws with enthusiasm, with passion, with pleasure, because this is the work of art which they themselves have constructed. If only men can do that, in other words, if only they can convert the necessity of obeying rules into some kind of almost instinctive, certainly perfectly free, harmonious, spontaneous, natural operation. If we can do that, we are saved. How are men to be somehow reconciled to each other? Because human beings might play very different games, and these games might easily involve them in disasters as great as any others. Because in some way, Schiller goes back, not very effectively, not very convincingly, to the Kantian principle that if we are rational, if we are like the Greeks, if we are in some way harmonious, if we understand ourselves, if we understand what freedom is, if we understand what morality is, if we understand what the pleasures and the, the heavenly delight of artistic creation is, if we do that, then surely, surely, we shall somehow achieve a harmonious relation with other creators, other artists, equally concerned not with mowing other men down, not with crushing them, but with living with them in some happy, unitedly creative world. And this is a kind of utopia on which Schiller's thought more or less ends. It's not, as I say, very convincing, but the general direction of it is fairly clear, which is that artists are people who obey rules of their own making. They invent the rules and they invent the objects. The material may be given by nature, but everything else is given by them. And that introduces the first note of what seems to me to be a crucial note in the history of human thought, namely that ideals, ends, objectives are not to be discovered by intuition, by scientific means, by reading sacred texts, by listening to experts or to authoritative persons, that ideals are to be discovered, not to be discovered at all. They are, in some sense, to be invented, not to be found, but to be generated, generated as people generate art. Birds, says Schiller, inspire us because we think, however falsely, that they dominate gravity, they fly which we cannot do. A vase is something which inspires us because in some way it is a triumph over brute matter. Triumph, if you like, a form, but a freely invented form, not of these rigorous forms which Calvinists and Lutherans and other religions or other secular tyrannies have imposed. Hence, this passion for invented forms, ideals which men make. Once upon a time, we were integral, we were Greeks. This is the great myth of the Greeks, which is historically quite false. We were children playing in the sunlight and didn't distinguish between necessity and freedom, between passion and reason. And this was a happy and innocent time, but this time is past. We cannot do this, and therefore, because life doesn't offer us these things, because what we discover in the universe is nothing but a grim causal treadmill, we must invent our own ideals. And these ideals, because they're invented, are in some sense in opposition to nature. In some sense, not part of her, but directed against her. And therefore, idealism, the invention of ends is, in some sense, a break with nature. And our task is so to subjugate nature, to do that with nature, which makes our very nature follow our ideal in some beautiful and frictionless manner. There he leaves it.
and that, so to speak, is the heritage of Schiller, which afterwards entered very deeply into the souls of romantics who abandoned the notion of harmony, who abandoned the notion of reason, and who became, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, somewhat more unbridled. The third thinker about whom I must say a word is the thinker Fichte, who was a philosopher and a disciple of Kant, and who's also, to some degree, added to this particular notion of freedom a particularly passionate exposition of it. Let me read you something by him, and you will see the kind of thing. At the mere mention of the name freedom, says Fichte, my heart opens and flowers, while at the word necessity, it contracts painfully. This shows temperamentally the kind of person he was. And indeed, he said, a man's philosophy is as his nature, not his nature as his philosophy. Hegel talked about Fichte's tendency to feel gloom, horror, abhorrence at the mere thought of the eternal laws of nature and their strict necessity. There are people, temperamentally, who are depressed by the thought of the hideous order, the unbreakable symmetry, the inescapable kind of world in which everything follows everything else in some unbreakable, orderly, totally unalterable way. And certainly Fichte belonged to these. Fichte's contribution to the particular, to what might be called romantic thought, consists in this. He says, if you are simply a contemplative being and ask for the answers to, to for example, to what to do or how to live in the realm of knowledge, you will never discover an answer. You will never discover an answer simply because knowledge always presupposes some larger knowledge. You arrive at the proposition and you ask for the authority and then some other knowledge, some other proposition is brought in in order to validate the first one. And then that proposition in turn needs validation and some wider generalization is needed for the purpose of bolstering up the earlier and so on ad infinitum. And therefore there is no end to the search. And we simply end with a Spinoza system which at best is simply a rigid, logical unity in which there is no room for movement. This is not true, says Fichte. Our lives do not depend upon contemplative knowledge. Life doesn't begin with disinterested contemplation of nature or of objects. Life begins with action. Knowledge is an instrument, as afterwards William James and, and Bergson and many others were to repeat. Knowledge is simply an instrument provided by nature for the purpose of effective life, of action. Knowledge is knowing how to get on, knowing what to do, knowing how to be, knowing how to adapt things to our use, knowing, in other words, so to speak, how to live and what to do in order not to perish in some semi-instinctive fashion. And this knowledge, which is the acceptance of certain things in the world, willy-nilly, because we can't help it, because it is presupposed in the biological urge, in the necessity of living, this is for Fichte a kind of act of faith. We do not act because we know, he says. I quote him. We know because we are called upon to act. Knowledge is not a passive state. External nature impinges upon us and stops us and is clay for our creation. We have freedom again. Then he makes an important proposition. Things are what they are, not because they are what they are, but because I make them so. Things depend upon the way in which I treat them, what I need them for. It is a kind of early, but extremely far-going pragmatism. Food is not what I hunger for. It is made food by my hunger, he says. I do not hunger for food because it is laid beside me. Because I hunger, the object becomes food. I do not accept what nature offers because I must. That's what animals do. That's what Locke and Descartes said human beings did, but this is false. I do not accept what nature offers because I must. I don't simply register what occurs, like a kind of um, machine. I do not accept what nature offers because I must. I believe it because I will. Who is master, nature or I? I am not determined by ends. Ends are determined by me. The world, he finally says, is a poem dreamt out in my inner life. 
This is a very dramatic, very poetical way of saying that experience is something which I determine because I act. Because I live in a certain way, things appear to me in a certain fashion. The world of a composer is different from the world of a butcher. The world of a man of the 17th century is different from the world of a man of the 12th century. There may be certain things which are common, but there are more things, or more important things at any rate, which for him are not. And Schlegel said, robbers are romantic because I make them romantic. Nothing is romantic by nature. And this undoubtedly is a proposition which nobody today would deny. <laughs> Freedom is action, not some contemplative state. To be free, says Fichte, is nothing. To become free is the very heaven. I make my world as I make a poem. Yet, of course, freedom is double-edged. Because I am free, I am able to exterminate others. I am capable of committing evil acts. Savages exterminate each other, and civilized nations, as Fichte, with a certain prescience, civilized nations, using the power of law, of unity, and of culture, will go on exterminating each other. Culture is not a deterrent to violence. And this certainly was a statement which the whole 18th century would unitedly have rejected. For the 18th century, culture was a deterrent to violence, because culture was knowledge, and knowledge proved the inadvisability of violence. This was not so for Fichte. Not culture. The only deterrent to violence is some kind of moral regeneration. Man shall be and do something. The whole notion of Fichte is that man is, in some sense, a kind of continuous action. Not even an actor, but a kind of continuous action. And in order to rise to his full height, he must constantly, constantly go on generating and creating. A man who does not create, a man who simply accepts what life or what nature offers him, is in some sense dead. And this is true not only of human beings, but also of nations. I will not go in here into the political implications of Fichte's doctrine. Fichte began by talking about individuals. Then he asked himself, what was an individual? How could one become a perfectly free individual? One obviously can't become perfectly free so long as one is a three-dimensional object in space because nature confines one in a thousand ways. Therefore, the only perfectly free being is something larger than man. It's something internal. Although I cannot force my body, I can force my spirit. The spirit for, for Fichte is not the spirit of an individual man, but something which is common to many men. And it is common to many men because each individual spirit is imperfect, because it is to some extent hemmed in and confined by the particular body which it is so unfortunate as to have entered. But if you ask what is pure spirit, pure spirit is some kind of mystical entity, rather like God, a central fire of which we are all individual sparks, a mystical notion which goes back at least to Burma. Gradually, after Napoleon's invasions and the general rise of nationalist sentiment in Germany, Fichte began thinking that human beings were perhaps what Herder said, that a man was made a man by other men, that a man was made a man by education, by language, Language was not invented by me, it was invented by others. And I am part of some common stream in which I am an element. My tradition, my custom, my outlook, everything about me is to some extent the creation of other men with whom I form an organic unity. And so gradually he moved from the notion of the individual as an empirical human being in space to the notion of the individual as something larger. Say a nation, say a class, say a sect. Now if once you move to that, then of course it becomes its business to act. It becomes its business to be free. And for a nation to be free means to be free of other nations. And if other nations obstruct it, it must make war. And so Fichte ends as a kind of rabid German patriot and nationalist who says, the world cannot be half slave and half free. If we are a free nation, if we are a great creator engaged upon creating those great values which, in fact, history has imposed upon us because we happen not to have been corrupted by the great decadence which has fallen upon the Latin nations. 
if we happen to be, in some sense, healthier, more vigorous, even if, if more barbarous than those decadent peoples, and here Francophobia emerges again, those decadent peoples who are nothing but the debris of what was once, no doubt, a very respectable Roman civilization. If that is what we are, then we must be free at the expense no matter of what. And therefore, since the world cannot be half slave and half free, we must conquer the others and absorb them into our texture. To be free is to be free of obstacles. To be free is to make free with. To be free is, so to speak, to be able not to be obstructed by anything in the full exercise of your enormous creative drive. And so we get the beginnings of this notion of vast nationalist or vast class-inspired collective drives forward, a kind of mystical notion of men creatively lunging forward for the purpose of not being frozen, not being dead, not being oppressed by anything which is static, whether it be static nature or whether it be institutions, moral principles, political principles, artistic principles, or anything else which is not made by them and which is not in process of constant fluid transformation. This is the beginning of this vast mystical drive forward on the part of inspired individuals or inspired nations constantly creating themselves afresh constantly aspiring to purify themselves and to reach some unheard of height of endless self-transformation, endless self-creation, as it were, works of art constantly engaged in creating themselves, forward, forward, like a kind of vast cosmic design perpetually engaged in renewing itself. This half-metaphysical, half-religious notion, which certainly emerges from the sober pages of Kant, and which Kant repudiated with the greatest possible vehemence and indignation. This mystical and, and semi-theological notion was destined to have an extremely violent effect, both upon German politics and German morals, but also upon German art, German prose, and German verse, and then, by natural transference, upon the French, upon the English as well. It is about German romantic poets, English romantic poets, and French romantics that I propose to talk next time, both in their artistic capacity and in the curious moral and political influence which they undoubtedly have had, both on their own time and on ours.